Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's uh, really, really, really great to be back here at Capitol. Uh, we actually spent four years here, uh, 2008 to 2012, and then we moved back to Canada for a while. We live in Hong Kong now. And um, yesterday I was reading the book of Romans. I'm not going to speak from that uh, this morning. But there's something that Paul said in that letter as he was planning to take a trip to visit the churches that he was writing to. He said, I long to go and see you that I could impart some spiritual gift to you. And so I thought, well, that's a good way to say it. So I'm here, hopefully, with that, that I could impart some spiritual gift. But I want to say the spiritual gifts I've already received just being here are many. So thank you, including that one. That was a really good one. Uh, thank you, um, Rick. You've already given us a good sermon. If you don't remember anything I say, just remember that one that we've heard this morning. Uh, the violin was beautiful, Doug, your worship, and the communion, so thank you. I had a special gift, too, of seeing John Wolf, who I know from Vancouver, uh, and part, now part of this church, so great gifts that God gives us. I'm going to be speaking this morning from Joshua 2, and so if you're, it's a story of Rahab the prostitute. Joshua sent spies um, just to track. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament narrative, I think most of you probably are. Israel had come out of Egypt through disobedience, wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're perched on the edge of the Jordan, ready to go in and take the inheritance that God has for them, the land of Canaan. So in Joshua 2, as they're about to begin that venture, he sends two spies in to check out the land. They go to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, spend some time there, they get to know her, she receives a promise that she's going to be okay, and then they come back and give the report to Joshua and the Israelite community. So we're going to look at this story in three parts. It's too long of a story to read, but there's three big ideas, kind of themes or characters. The first is land, the second is the spies, and then the third is Rahab. It's really Rahab's story, so we'll spend most of the time talking about Rahab this morning. But the first part is the land. So the land bookends this story in Joshua chapter 2. At the beginning, Joshua said to the spies, go and view out Jer the land, especially Jericho. So they did view Jericho, but there's nothing about them viewing anything else in the land. But this word land in Joshua 2 is repeated nine times. It's an important theme in the story. The spies, when they came back from viewing the land, or Jericho, they used the word twice, and they said, Yahweh has given us the land. It's actually in the past tense. He's already made the decision. They haven't yet received it, but he had made the decision. He has given us the land. The decision has already been made in God's mind. This entire book of Joshua is about God's people receiving the land that he wanted to give them. So at the beginning, they're led into the land with God's command, with a great act of power, the parting of the Jordan. They take the land by winning some battles. The land is divided among them tribe by tribe, and it becomes theirs. It's a little bit hard, I think, in the 21st century for us to actually like this story. I've been a long-term missionary. And um, I'm increasingly sensitive to people from one culture going to another culture and assuming superiority over that culture. And sometimes previous generations of missionaries would go to those lands that they went to on the backs of imperial armies as they were conquering those lands. So today when we read the story of Joshua under God's guidance going in and displacing a people from the land of Canaan, it can bring some trouble to our spirits. I want to explain a little bit about that in a moment. I'm a Canadian, by the way. How many here have seen the movie Canadian Bacon? 
three of you. Okay. It's, a, it's a, actually a really good movie, produced by an American, not by a Canadian. But the plot of this movie is, you know, Canada is just north of America, and the Americans kind of think of us as the 51st state, if they like us, if they happen to like us at the time. But the plot of this movie is the American president, his approval rating is going down. And so the people around him convince him that in order for his approval to go up, he has to declare war on another country. And so they look around the world, who can they declare war on? So they decide Canada is a good, good choice to declare war on. We can declare war on our neighbor to the north. So it's a movie about all these stereotypical things about Americans and Canadians. But how would I feel? How would I really feel if another country, particularly the country to the south, decided one day, we want your land, and I'm going to invade you and take it from you? Well, it's a hard thing for us to get our minds around. I'm going to explain in a moment some of the justification for Israel going and taking the land of Canaan. But about the land, there's four big ideas. The first is this. All land belongs to God. Everything in the world belongs to God. Psalm 24:1. The, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. As the great landlord, he apportions the land to people in the way that he wants. It all belongs to to him. Second is that the land is a gift. The land is a gift. My dad was an immigrant from the Ukraine, actually German, living in the Ukraine. Came to Canada when he was 12 years old, 1924. And when they were living in Ukraine as Germans, they were overtaken by the Bolshevik armies at the time. And so the, all of their land that they had was taken away from them. They fled to Canada, poor immigrant family, and they worked like crazy in order to get a piece of land. They raised chickens and they sold the eggs and did whatever they could to earn a few dollars with the goal of being able to have some land. So because my dad worked night and day, I grew up on 15 acres in Canada. It was the, it was the land that he worked hard for. Hong Kong, where I live now, is quite different. You, 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 work, uh, you take a 25-year mortgage out for about 300 square feet on the 30th floor of some building. But people will do it. They'll work like crazy so that they can possess this thing that they can call their home, their little piece of real estate. In Hong Kong, we call it unreal estate. We work hard for it. And so it's easy for us to forget as we're putting so much energy into acquiring this thing that ev almost all people in the world want, a little space to call their own, it's easy to forget that the land is actually God's gift. And this is what he wanted his people to know. The land is a gift. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and I'm giving you this land as a gift. The uh, philosopher slash farmer, Wendell Berry, I think I have a slide here, has written a lot about this gift of land. And he says this, the ecological teaching of the Bible is simply inescapable. God made the world because he wanted it made. He thinks the world is good. He loves it. It's his world. He's never relinquished title to it. He's never revoked the conditions bearing on his gift to the use of it that oblige us to take excellent care of it. It's God's land. When we walk the land, whether or not it's covered by pavement and concrete, it's God's land. And he gives it to us as a gift. The American folk singer sang a song 
that kind of brings a misconception to, the, to our minds. This land is my land. This land is your land. Well, kind of it is, but it's only so because God gives it to us as a gift. Today, one of the big international topics is immigration. National borders are becoming strengthened all over the world as the question nations are asking is how can we allow immigrants into, or should we allow immigrants into our land? Canada has allowed quite a few. Other countries are not doing the same, trying to protect national interests. As Christians, we approach that question, whatever answer we have to the question, as Christians, we approach it with the idea that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and he gives land as a gift. Third idea is the land is our sphere of living. The land is our sphere of living. We come from the land and will return to the land. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. As Christians, we dare not become super spiritual to think that life is about going from one conference to another. The Christian life is about going from one conference to another. The Christian life is practical, it's earthy, it's our sphere of living. But the fourth thing, and this is where we're going to be coming soon to Rahab, is that we must be worthy of the land. So Israel's receiving this land of Canaan from God the landlord, which means that he has to evict other people from this land. And it's his decision. The reason that they're being evicted is because they've polluted his land with their sin. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. Every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, and they've even burned their sons and daughters to the gods. You know, if I rent your apartment and then I trash it, what are you going to do? You're going to evict me from your place. Or if I don't pay rent, you're going to say, I'm going to get this tenant out of there. God looks at the whole world from his vantage point, nation by nation, and he sees where they are polluting his land, and he makes decisions. So his decision at this point, because of the sin of the Canaanites, they're going to be evicted from the land that goes after their name, Canaan. Now, Israel can't get smug about this, because about four or five hundred years later, they're going to be evicted from that land for the very same reason. God makes a decision for them as well. So that's the land, the big idea in Joshua chapter 2. Secondly, the spies. Now here's the interesting thing in this story. Joshua sends in these spies to check out the land, but they only go to Jericho. And the last time that spies went into the land of Canaan, they went through the whole land. And you remember that story from Numbers chapter 13. They brought back a bad report. They discouraged people with their report. They diminished the faith in, in people. But here these spies go in and they only see the land of Jericho. They brought back a good report, though, and they said, we can certainly, God has certainly given us this land. There is a, a point from the spies that we can take away. This is just a minor point in my message today, is that we can either extinguish or encourage the faith of others. We all have the power every day to do that. We can help people have a diminished view of God by playing up on their fears, or we can help people have a big view of God and strengthening their faith. The latter spies help people have a better view of God. The previous spies diminished God in the eyes of others. But the real question I have as I read this story is, why is it even here? This, sport, this story is not really important to the grand narrative of Israel taking the land of Canaan. The spies didn't really do anything. 
They went into Jericho, and they stayed at the house of a prostitute. Then they hid in the mountains for three days, and then they came back home. It's not like the other spy story that's really integral to the whole bigger narrative of, uh, of Israel. Because of the other spy story, they had to wander for 40 years. It was their unbelief. But the spies don't really move this narrative forward. Why is that? Because they're really not that important. The story is about Rahab. And that's where we're going to turn now. Rahab the prostitute. So as Israel's about to enter the land of Canaan and take the land that God has for them, the, person, the first person of significance that they meet is Rahab the prostitute. Now, you'll notice you, if you read Joshua 2, she's the only person who's named. The two spies aren't named. In Numbers 13, all 12 were named, so we remember them. But these two spies aren't named. The king of Jericho, another character in the story, isn't named. It's only Rahab who is named. You can't really remember anyone without a name. So we've forgotten who the, we have no idea who these spies were. Uh, king of Jericho, he's lost to us. But Rahab goes down through history as this person who was named in the story. It's her story. This is about Rahab. She's going to be remembered. Now remember, one of the reasons, the major reason, the Canaanites are being displaced from this land is because of their practices. And part of their practices were degraded sexual practices. They did sacrifice their babies to idols, to the god Moloch. And they had both male and female prostitutes that slept with people mostly as acts of worship. So there were two ways that a person would be a prostitute in the days of the Canaanites. One, one reason was for uh, economic reasons. If you needed to feed your family, you would go into prostitution. You could go into prostitution. But the main reason people were prostitutes, both men and women, was because the go their gods demanded it. The gods of fertility and the gods of weather demanded acts of prostitution as part of their worship. And so before going in, God was very careful with Israel to tell them, when you go into the land, I forbid you from doing any of the things that those people have done because they've polluted the land with their actions. You are to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people who belong exclusively to Yahweh. So Rahab, we don't know if she's a ritual prostitute or if she was driven to prostitution through economic need, but she did represent the very thing that was the object of God's wrath. So when I read this story, at the beginning of Joshua, Israel's about to enter the land, and I see the, the, the reasons that God has to punish these people, I wonder, why is Rahab the first character in this story? The one character named. The one character who might is, who's going to escape his punishment. And then we go to the New Testament, and we find in the very first page, I think about four verses in to the New Testament, her name is mentioned again in Jesus' genealogy. She's one of two Canaanite women who are mentioned right at the beginning of our New Testament. The first was Tamar, another Canaanite woman. You know what Tamar did? She wasn't a prostitute, but she pretended to be one so she could sleep with her father-in-law. And the second woman mentioned is Rahab, who actually was a prostitute. Bad girls, from a conventional religious point of view. But they fit very well in this community <laughs> that God wants to create for himself. Why is this story here? It's Rahab's story. She didn't provide any intel for the spies. 
totally unnecessary for their mission. No intel that would help them to be, defeat Jericho. She only hid the spies so that their lives could be spared. It's a story of protection and salvation. This story tells us something about God, something very profound about God. God prefers mercy over judgment. Later in the New Testament, James, in his letter, would actually turn this into a principle and actually say those words, mercy triumphs over judgment. But we see it played out over and over again in both Old and New Testaments, and particularly here in this story. In the center of the story is Rahab's speech. So the last bit of time we have here, I just want to look at her speech, verses 9 to 14. If you have a, I don't know if you, I actually know, we, I, Josh inputted it to me, so we have, for me we have it on the, the screen. But I don't know if you guys pull out here. Nobody brings a Bible to church anymore, right? Um, but if, you probably have it on your phone if you want to go there. So in the middle of this story, Rahab says some things. What she knows, what she wants, and what she receives. First, what she knows, verses 9 to 11. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was, on our, there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, and he is God in heavens above. Go back to the next slide, please. Oh, yeah, just go back. That, that's, that's good enough. What she knows. So in this short speech, she mentions Israel's God, Yahweh, four times. And she knows three, thing, or four, three things about this God. First thing, she knows the will of God. He, she says, he's, he's decided to give you the land. I already know that. And so when the spies came to her house, she protected them from the king of Jericho, who was looking for them. He certainly would have killed them. But she showed her allegiance to God by lying to her king, the Jericho, Jericho king, and hiding the Israelites. Because she knows that Yahweh has made a decision. And the decision is not in the hands of her king, the king of Jericho. The decision is in the hands of Israel's God, Israel's king, Yahweh. So she knows the will of God. Second, she knows the power of God, that he acts for his people. He's worked great wonders, she said. He dried up the sea for you. He's already defeated two kings. Our hearts have melted because of the power of this God. She knows the will of God. She knows the power of God. And thirdly, she knows the position of God, that he's God in heaven and on earth over everything. So she knows his will, his power, his position. This Canaanite prostitute is actually quite a theologian. And later, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, she's going to be listed among a group of people who had faith in God. The only Gentile woman, one of two women, to make that list, the only Gentile. Hers are the actions of someone with faith, because faith simply is a response to what we believe about God. Rahab saw who God was. She concluded that his will would be done that he had the power to do whatever he wanted, and that he occupied the supreme position in the universe. There's no power greater than him, and the Bible calls that faith. So from Rahab we learn, if you want to have stronger faith, don't think about your faith. 
Just look at God. Grow in the knowledge of God. Cultivate your thoughts about him. Look to him to work in your circumstances. Cultivate his presence with you at all times. Secondly, we see what Rahab wants in verses 12 and 13. And we won't read that text. I think it was in the slide before. But what she wants, that's okay. We'll just go back to that one. Thanks. Go to that one. What she wants is this. She wants chesed. Chesed. It's a Hebrew word. Chesed. It's translated in the text that we read as kind. I want kindness, but it means so much more than helping an old lady across the street. Chesed. It's the word of the covenant. It describes God's disposition of favor to those that he loves. It means that God turns his face towards somebody and says, I'm going to bless you just because I want to bless you on the basis of my character. Chesed. The God who is described in 1 John simply with three words, God is love, wants to turn towards people and love them. And Rahab said, this is what I want. I want his chesed. I want his grace. I want his favor. So as my people experience wrath for their sin, I want his mercy. In the name of Yahweh, she says, let me be a representative of chesed. And finally, verse 14, what she receives. She asked for the salvation of everyone in her house. Now, how many people is that? The text says, my mom, my dad, my family, and everyone who belongs to them. Jericho wasn't a modern city populated by a lot of unrelated strangers. In Beijing, we've come from all corners of the world, and we've kind of found ourselves in this city, and we get to know each other. But we all have our laojia, our hometown, and other places, right? But in Jericho, it would have been a place where people would have been quite closely connected. So there's people in Rahab's house, mom and dad. I don't know where she practiced prostitution, but her mom and dad are there, in-laws, outlaws. Probably lots of family members living together in Jericho. And probably, I would think, in those days, in that kind of agrarian society where kids grew up and they get married in the same hometown, you get married to the neighbor down the, to the person down the street, and then they get married to that other person down the street. And so probably everyone is kind of interconnected in this town. So what she asked for is the salvation of everyone in my house, my mother, my father, my siblings, and everybody who belongs to them. So Rahab has a brother who married Susie down the street. Susie has a mom and a dad and probably several other kids. And Susie's parents also, their kids have married somebody else at another house down the street. And Rahab says, everybody who belongs to them, so who does not belong to them? It's probably at least half the town. Everyone who belongs to, the, to my house. When we get to Joshua chapter 6, that story of Jericho being crushed... It's even more extensive, the description of the people who are saved, everybody in Rahab's house. So I imagine now, this is pre-invasion, I imagine there's an opportunity for the word to spread throughout Jericho that there is a safe house. The problem is it's a brothel. I don't know if it's a brothel, but the problem is it's the house of Rahab the prostitute. So who's going to believe that? Why would hers be the safe house? 
but it is. And anyone who comes into this house as Jericho is being destroyed under the power of God who has melted the hearts of the whole earth will be safe in Rahab's house. Those who would have faith like Rahab, who would believe her story, would be saved from God's wrath. Rahab, the prostitute, the owner of the safe house, <laughs> great irony of the story, that she, the one who represented the object of God's wrath, would be the conduit of grace. The church is not really high on prostitution. It's not something we encourage, right? It's never seen as something, an activity promoted by God. It's an, old, it's an offense in the Old Testament, punishable by death. In the New Testament, all forms of sexual immorality are forbidden. But here the prostitute is the means of grace because she has eyes to see. Now, I assume that when it was all said and done, Rahab gave up her life of prostitution because it wouldn't have been suitable for God's holy people of whom she had now become a part. But there is no mention of her repentance at any point in the story because her repentance is not the point. The point is that she trusts God and she's spared from judgment. So the story teaches us that mercy triumphs over judgment. That God longs to be merciful even to those who must be judged for their sin. Judgment is inevitable. God, the landlord of the whole earth, looks at what we are doing on this land that he's given to us as a gift. And nobody else has that ability to play the judge. Only from his vantage point can he make those decisions those decisions about who should stay in this land and who should be evicted, nobody else can play that role. But God must. Otherwise, the world would spiral into chaos, total chaos. Salvation belongs to our God. The spies told Rahab when they were leaving to hang something from, their win from her window. They said a scarlet cord. Scarlet's the color of red. And that would identify her home as the safe house for the people of Israel. Or for, the for, the, for, for Israel to see and also for the Jer people of Jericho to go into. Bright red color. Now the Catholics in the, uh, cardinals in the Catholic Church actually wear that same color in their vestments to symbolize the blood of Christ and the martyrs. So like that scarlet cord hung from Rahab's window... So the cross where the blood of Christ was shed, in which we just celebrated, represents our safe house. Through the blood of Jesus, we have now peace with God, the God of judgment, the God who should have evicted us from the land. And we are always now forever in that safe house. It's our home. And we can be comforted by this story. Probably not many in this room have lived a life of prostitution. And you, if you can think of the most unworthy person to be inside the safe house, like Rahab, we are all kind of like her in many ways in our hearts. And we've come into that house to plead for mercy, the God who prefers mercy over judgment. I want to just leave you with two things to think about, about God in this story. There's two things that I see particular. There's many things about God in this story, but two things particularly that stand out to me. 
One is that God is surprising. He's very surprising. I wouldn't have done it this way. I wouldn't have expected him to do it this way. To find a way of salvation for Jericho through a prostitute. You know, we often send out, I, I work with, a, do a lot of work inside this nation. I'm a pastor in Hong Kong, but we're always often sending out teams. And when a team goes to a new location, one of the first things they do, kind of consistent with when Jesus sent out, commissioned uh, his disciples in the New Testament, when you go to that place, look for a man of peace. So we often tell them to look for a man of peace, and when you find your man of peace, then start your ministry there. We've never, ever told them, go to a brothel or go find a prostitute in that new place that you're going to. That wouldn't be part of our strategy, I don't think, unless you're Jenny McGee and you're doing starfish. That's her, actually her explicit strategy. Um, so God's surprising. He does things in ways that we just can't imagine. And one takeaway for the story is that for us. Don't limit God to our little systems, the way we want him to do things. Let him surprise us. The second thing that I see in this story is that he is merciful, and I've mentioned this several times. To me, that's the main point of this story. He's merciful. God loved the Canaanites. He loved them in their sin, and he wanted them to have a means of grace by which they could avoid his judgment. And he chose what represented the worst of their world. He chose that which he hated most to show the extent of his chesed. He prefers mercy over judgment. One of the questions I ask myself often, just as I go through my days, do I see things with the eyes of mercy or do I see with the eyes of judgment? To be honest, I'm often finding myself in the place of judgment. Whether it's people walking on the street, the way they drive their cars, spitting everywhere, do you have to smoke there? I often find myself in that posture of judgment. Yesterday I read through the book of Romans and um, Great, if you get it like an hour, it don't take you an hour. What a wonderful, edifying exercise. But I saw something that I hadn't really noticed so clearly in that letter before, and that was the number of times where Paul repeated, stop passing judgment, stop passing judgment, stop passing judgment. Because he's anchoring his theology in that book and the love of God once and for all given to us through Christ. And if we've really gotten that, if we really understand that, how could we possibly put ourselves in a position of judgment? It's impossible. Stop passing judgment. God longs to be merciful. So as we learn from his heart, I guess that's my prayer for myself and, and for us, that we could take this way of being through the spirit that now lives in us, the very presence of God, as we cultivate that life of the spirit on a daily basis, be sensitive to ourselves and our judgmental attitudes and learn to live in this unwavering mercy of God, his chesed that binds us to him and wants so much to be expressed to the world. Let's pray. <clears throat>
Thank you, God, just uh, for who you are. Thank you that you haven't treated us as we deserve. I know we say that a lot, but sometimes it's just a concept to us. We ask that you will help us to be so deeply aware, maybe even painfully aware, of the depth of your love for us. And help us to pass it on in this world that we live in, even with people we don't like very much. So we ask for that grace to, to live out this story. And thank you so much for Rahab, this woman who trusted you and now serves as an example to us of what faith should look like. It's kind of funny for us to ask you that you'll help us to aspire to the spirituality of a prostitute. But help us, our God, to help us to aspire to her faith. And we could see you like she did. Make decisions like she did. And receive what she received. Gracious God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.